You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We're in the series of Doctrine, Doctrine That Goes the Distance, and uh, Pastor Todd has blessed you by helping you set a solid foundation on what all other doctrine stems from, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of revelation. And so um, flowing out of that, we look at Scripture. We believe that Scripture is our, our ultimate authority for where we get all truth. And so our truth that we're going to look at today is the doctrine of creation. Can we show that little bumper video? So we're going to study the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the first two books of Genesis. First two chapters of the book of Genesis. While you're turning there, I want to highlight why doctrine matters. And I know Pastor Todd has talked about this. I know this won't be new to you, but um, we have our middle schoolers in here this morning. We don't have our middle school intensive class this morning. So our middle schoolers are in here, and I want to, just from a youth pastor perspective, maybe put a couple points on why doctrine and theology matters, why devote your life to it. Uh, My wife can attest to this. This has not always been true of me. I've not always been a person who has loved and has craved the study of theology and doctrine. Um, Even when I was at Bible college, I kind of thought Theology 101 and Theology 102 were the boringer of the classes. It was, come on, let's get to the practical stuff, right? Let's get to to the youth ministry classes. That's what I'm going to be doing, right? The theology and doctrine stuff, hasn't that stuff been settled? Like, don't we know that stuff? Let's move on. And that has not been the case for me. I've not always been a lover of doctrine and theology, but I'll make these two statements. The more I have fallen in love with God, the more I have fallen in love with doctrine. I think those two go hand in hand. The more I love God, the more I desire to know him. And that is the study of doctrine. And I'll make this statement. The more I've fallen in love with doctrine, the more I've fallen in love with God. The study of doctrine is not the end itself. The study of doctrine and theology always creates doxology. The more I study it, the more I ponder what I believe and why I believe it. It always creates a full heart that overflows. Why does doctrine matter? I've got a couple points for you. Because doctrine is what helps the story of the Bible make sense. These 66 books that have interesting stories and multiple of characters and tons of authors. How does it all come together? That is doctrine and theology. Number two, why does doctrine matter? Doctrine is the guardrails for our heart and our mind when it comes to reading the Bible. Without doctrine, when you open up your Bible and read it, you can get weird and wrong real quickly. Doctrine is what keeps you down the straight and narrow, keeps you true to its original purpose and its intent. And the third reason why doctrine matters, because like I said, doctrine always leads to doxology. That's what's so beautiful about doctrine, is it helps us and makes us better worshipers of God. So if you're out there and you're thinking, this whole summer on doctrine, can't we just get to the narrative? Can't we just get to the stories? Can't we just skip to the Gospels or talk about Jesus? We will. We do that in doctrine. And doctrine helps us stay true and accurate to what Jesus said and what the Bible declares and teaches. So appreciate doctrine. Be grateful for it. Can it divide? Yeah, but it can also unify. 
And I think that's what is beautiful about this series that we're going through. We are coming to the conclusion on what unifies First Family Church. Will there be some outside of First Family Church that will disagree? Yeah. But this is what unites us. For those of you that are members, you agreed to a system or a set of doctrinal statements. Don't you want to know what we believe and why we believe it? I think you do. Well, that's not my topic this morning. My topic is creation. We're going to look at God makes, the doctrine of creation. So I have three points today, and under, not, under each point are several other points. So any note takers out here, see if you can follow along with me. And if it doesn't match up, let me know after the service. I get one more shot after this. So uh, I've got three main points, and under each main point are several sub-points, okay? And so that will help you kind of see the outline and hopefully make the outline make sense. So here's my three points. The doctrine of creation. Number one, does it matter what we believe? If you're familiar with Christianity at all, you know there's different viewpoints on creation. There are different stances. And it's a quite a heated uh, debate, isn't it? Gets a lot of feathers ruffled, this topic. So does it matter what we believe? Does it matter which one we choose, which viewpoint we choose? Or can we just say, can't we all just get along? Why do we have to argue and disagree? So does it matter? Number two, is the Bible clear on this topic? Some say it isn't. Is the Bible clear on creation? Does it tell us what we must believe about creation? We'll talk about that. I'm excited about that point. And then the last one, does it really impact my life? Like, does it really matter? Okay, great. You're a literal six-day creationist. I'm an old earth creationist. Who cares, right? Does it really matter? No. We'll talk about that. I'm excited. Very excited. So, number one, you ready? And underneath one, we're going to have some sub-points. Preaching on theology and doctrine is a little bit harder or more difficult than preaching a a book, and you'll, you'll probably see that today. So, number one, does it matter what we believe about creation? The doctrine of creation addresses several topics that are very important yet very controversial. This is why it matters. Because what we're going to talk about today can ruffle feathers because the questions that it addresses are very important. Here's a couple of questions that the doctrine of creation addresses. The origin of the earth. The origin of life. The origin of mankind. And then that flows to, okay, then what is the purpose of mankind? And then finally it addresses, what is the value of mankind? Wouldn't we all agree that these are very important questions that are up for debate today? This is why the doctrine of creation matters. Because it not only addresses these five pivotal questions, but it answers them definitively. So my desire for you is after today's sermon, you'll not only know the questions you ought to wrestle with, but you'll know the answers to those questions. The origin of the earth, the origin of life, the origin of man, what is mankind's purpose, and what is mankind's value. Those are all up for debate today in the world you live in, and therefore many decisions are being being based upon those questions. So does the doctrine of creation matter more than we know? As Ken Ham is famous for saying, if we cave on Genesis 1 and 2, we give up the rest of the Bible as well. The doctrine of of creation is the bedrock for the remainder of the doctrines we will be studying this summer. So if you give up Genesis 1 and 2, 
the next seven weeks won't make any sense because it's our bedrock, it's our foundation, the origin of man, the purpose of man. We've got to get this week for us to understand next week and the remainder of the series. Of course it matters. It matters more than we know. All right, my second point in my sermon, this one will take a little bit longer, you'll see. Is the Bible clear on the topic? Think about that question. Can you answer that question real quick? Maybe if you're writing down some notes, write down your own answer to that question. Is the Bible clear on the topic of creation? How would you answer that question? If I were to do a poll, if I could text you all in a poll or do a Twitter poll, and you answered I'm really curious to find out what the answer would be. Is the Bible clear on the topic of creation? So you know what Gallup polls are? They're a company that does polls. Let me give you some statistics from 2017, okay? A study done by Gallup polls this year, 2017, on what Americans believe about creation versus evolution reveals three really interesting facts. If, you're, if you have a pen or a paper in your hand, write down some of your guesses. What do you think? If we were to ask the Ameri- Americans, okay, here's, here's a statistic you need to know. S- between 70 and 80% of Americans claim, claim to be Christian. But somewhere between 70 and 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. Okay, if those exact same people were asked these questions, creation or evolution, or somewhere in the middle, a mix, What do you think the percentage would be? What do you think those statistics are? Let me give them to you. 38% of Americans say God created man in the form he looks like today. 38% of Americans say God created man in the form he looks like today. That is the lowest in 35 years that this question has been asked. So that question by Gallup polls has been asked for 35 years It's at the lowest point ever, 38%. 38% say humans evolved, but God guided the process. That theory is known as theistic evolution. That is about the average for what that one has been. It's been as high as 40, as low as 31. It's 38% of humans, I'm sorry, of Americans, believe that that humans evolved, but God guided the process called theistic evolution. And then here's the last one. The less educated Americans are more likely to believe in creationism. The less educated Americans are more likely to say, yep, mankind was created by God in the way that they look today. The less educated. How does that settle with you, creationists? How does that settle? Those statistics were really interesting to me. So according to this study, Americans say the Bible is not clear on the topic of creation. Are they right or wrong? How would you answer that question? Is the Bible clear? Like, does it tell us what we must believe about creation? Does it? Isn't it like a story? Isn't it hypothetical? How would you answer that question if Gallup polls were to ask you? What my goal is right now on this point is to discuss what we, what we as Christians do believe about creation as it is told from Scripture. There will be many topics we won't discuss in today's sermon. There are areas you will need to wrestle with on your own time, and we encourage you to do so. But please wrestle with them in light of Scripture. 
not separate from Scripture. If you have any questions, email cellar at ffclife.com. <laughs> he would love to answer your questions. So last week, Todd taught on Revelation through Scripture. He talked about sola scriptura. The Bible is our ultimate authority on where our theology comes from. Today, we will discuss creation, which, as you will see, flows right out of the topic of Revelation. We study creation in light of what we started, studied last week, which is Revelation, how God tells us truth. So what has God revealed to us about how he created the world? Let's explain it this way. The Bi- let's compare a Bible and a science book. As, creations, as Christians, sorry, we hold out the word of God as our ultimate authority on every topic. We don't hold the Bible in one hand and the origin of species or a science textbook in the other as equals. That's what the world wants you to do. A freedom of religion, sure. Yeah, the Bible, good. That's a authority. Here's the origin of species. That is a authority as well. Here's uh, your AP science book, high schoolers. That is a authority as well. Hold those equally. Evaluate truth based upon both of those. Come to a conclusion based upon the several authorities you have in your life. As Christians, we hold out that the word of God is our ultimate authority. And we evaluate every other book by it. It literally sits on top of every other book we read. And we evaluate every other book based upon it. There is not conflict between Christianity and science itself. But many times there is a conflict between Christianity and our understanding of the sciences. For example, for hundreds of years, the common understanding of the world was that the sun revolved around the earth, called the geocentric model. This was the common view that was taught publicly as truth, but that didn't make it truth. The very fact that it was taught in our educational system didn't make it truth. We know that our understanding of the cosmos can change, but what God has revealed to us about his creation won't ever change. Does that mean we're capable of understanding it today? No, that's why we study, and that's why we learn, and why we go to church, and we go to classes, and we do catechisms, so we can continue to learn. So are we saying that everything in a science book is wrong? No, of course not. But the question is, which is your ultimate authority? Which do you bow your knee to? Which one are you willing to die for? That's the question we have to wrestle with. A lot of the cloudiness comes because the Bible was not written to be a science textbook answering all of our questions about how the cosmos work. So there is freedom to explore and investigate the amazing world we live in. But as Christians, we believe that the word of God is inerrant, infallible, and unchanging. So we believe the Bible and interpret what we see and read with an open hand. Instead of taking what we see and read as truth and evaluate the Bible with an open hand. Does that make sense? This is truth. We evaluate everything by the word of God. So let's look at our text today. Genesis chapter 1. This is going to be our main text. I'll jump around a little bit. We'll talk about Genesis 1 and 2 today. But just for a little clarity, I want you to focus on these verses. This will be our main thrust of our sermon today. Genesis chapter 1. 
I'll read what's on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. As you know about Genesis chapter 1, there's a theme. There's a a common flow to the rest of the chapter. It all reads the same way. God speaks, it is created, he calls it good. That's the common theme through the rest of the days. So we're going to look at this as our framework and talk about um, what God clearly states to us from Genesis chapter 1. So we're in point 2, and in point 2 there's eight sub-points, okay? You ready? So eight things that Genesis chapter 1 clearly teaches us about creation. These are non-negotiables. You're a Christian, you believe these eight things, okay? Non-negotiables. These are what we believe about creation from Genesis chapter 1 that's very clear. The thing that's beautiful about this is that in the Hebrew, the first three words are Bereshit, bara Elohim. The first four things we're going to learn about creation all come from the first three words of the Hebrew text. Bereshit, bara Elohim. So we're going to learn eight things. The first four come from the first three words of the Hebrew text. Bereshit means in the beginning. Bara means to create from nothing. And Elohim is the triune God. So number one, the first thing we must believe about creation from Genesis chapter one is that God is the subject of all creation. He is the point and not dependent upon creation. He is the point. In English, it says, in the beginning, God. Or we could say it this way, before there was anything, there was God. God is the subject of all creation. He is the point. He's not dependent upon creation. He is the subject of all matter. Acts chapter 17 says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The subject, the point of all creation is God. Before there was anything, before anything existed, there was God. And he he was perfectly fine. Number two, what do we learn from creation? God is the author of of creation. It is his story, not ours. Look in the English text again. God, uh, in the beginning, God created. That second word in the Hebrew text is bara. Bara means to create from nothing. This helps us understand that there's a difference between the creator versus created things. Romans 1.25 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. One thing we must understand is that God is the author, not mankind. If you were to read a book, a fictional novel, you see that there are main characters and they seem to be the subject or the point. But like any good reader, you understand there's an author. And the author is the one who gives those characters life and breath. At any moment, the author has complete freedom to destroy any character, to um, magnify any character, or to plan their future. 
God is our creator, but so quickly we assume the created ones are the subject and the most important piece in the story. No, God is the author. It's his story, not ours. In the beginning, God created. He's the author. Number three, the, the cosmos were made from nothing. That's the word bara. In Genesis chapter one, there's two different words for the word creation. There's bara and asa. And they're both in the text to show you there's a difference. In Genesis chapter one, right at the beginning, it says bara, God created. It's from uh, um, the Hebrew word to create from nothing. The Latin term is ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. He's the only one that has the ability to do that. He's separate from all of his created ones. You have the ability to create, but that's the Hebrew word asa. You have the ability to mold and to shape and to make and to put together. You take a piece of clay and you form that clay into a statue. You don't have the ability to speak and to create a piece of clay. You have the ability to write music, but you have to take notes and musical instruments in order to form something that's already been there. God has the ability to create out of nothing. Nothing existed, and then everything existed. It's the theology of ex nihilo, that God created everything from nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we, under, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. So in order to understand Hebrews, we must understand Genesis chapter 1. The fourth thing we understand about creation from our text on the screen is that the cosmos have a beginning. Man, what a debated topic this one is. The cosmos have a beginning. It says God created the heavens and the earth. They have a beginning. There was no creation, and then there was creation. We must believe, Genesis 1, the cosmos have a beginning. I love Job. I love the story of Job. Job goes through a horrible, difficult life. And then at the end of Job, he's finally able to have a conversation with the creator. He's able to have this conversation, this face-to-face -face talk about why and what happens. And in Job chapter 38, verse 4, God says, Hey, Job, uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? God comes to Job and says, I, under I understand you want answers. I understand life's been difficult. I understand... You've been dealt a tough hand, O oh, created one. You're not the creator. You weren't there when I created it, when I put it together, when I spoke it, when I formed it. Know your place. Be reminded of your role. I'm the creator. I spoke it into being. It did not exist, and then it did. The cosmos have a beginning. Your science book will tell you differently. But the cosmos have a beginning. Number five, God rules presently, rules over his creation. He didn't create it and let it go. This is the idea of theistic evolution. No, no, no. God had a role. Yeah, he, he helped, and the earth has kind of taken over since. It's the clockwork uh, theology. God wound up the clock and let it go and let time kind of do its thing. God rules over his creation presently. He didn't create and let it go. The earth was without form and void, it says. And darkness was over the face of the deep, 
period, end of chapter 1? No. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Hebrew, that's tohu vabohu. That's just really fun to say. And what that means is it was desolate. It was without life. It was not able to make life or to create life. It was dead. He formed it, but not able to produce life. And so for it to be able to produce life, the Spirit had to get to work. And the Spirit had to form it and shape it. God was present in its creation, and God was present and sovereign over its forming. He put it together exactly how he wanted it. He shaped it. He brought it to life. It didn't come to life. Number six, God spoke, and life was created. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is how God works. Genesis 1 teaches us so much about God. It teaches us exactly how God works, what he does, what he does to bring dead things to life. God spoke, and it came to life. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Genesis gives us the first instance of how he does what he does by the word of his mouth. Todd talked about this last week in Revelation. Through the word of God, dead things come to life. Do you know that's how you got saved? The word of God brought you to life. Ephesians 1 teaches us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when God showed up by the preaching of the word of God, somebody preached you the gospel. That's every one of your story. The word of God was proclaimed and it created life. Genesis 1 gives us a hint at the gospel. You want to know how dead things come to life? Through the spoken word of God. That's how the cosmos came into existence and that's how you became alive in Christ when the gospel was proclaimed to you. That's why we proclaim the gospel every week because that's how dead people come to life. Number uh, seven, God created the cosmos with order, not chaos. God created the cosmos with order. The rest of the chapter is the six days of creation. Why is that significant? Because it points to a God of order. It points to somebody who's in charge that can make an earth that is sustainable for life. God made this world to create and sustain life. There's order, not chaos. Chaos always ends in destruction. Order sustains life. The earth was, was not made like a three-year-old. It wasn't made by this silly artist slapping paint on paper and saying, isn't this beautiful? No, it was made by an artist with a plan and a purpose, with expertise. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This summer, go outside and stare at your creator's handiwork. Be amazed, be marveled by his masterpiece. He made it to glorify himself, not to glorify you. He made it to glorify himself so that when you look up to the heavens, you are without excuse. There must be a God. This can't just happen. Chaos doesn't create life. Order creates life and sustains life. And the last point that we must learn from Genesis chapter 1 is that God created the earth 
good. What does good mean? There's been a lot of debate over that word, that God created the earth good. Good means pleasing or pleasing to the creator. It means it has purpose. It means it's capable of producing wonderful things. It had a purpose and it fulfilled that purpose. It says, let the earth sprout vegetation. It had the possibility of reproducing. That was what made it good. A process of producing and reproducing other good things. How beautiful. Those are the eight things that we do believe, that we hold to, that we stand firm on, and that we aren't moved by. So when you read your science textbook, when you read your AP biology book, and it differs, which way do you cave? Which way do you shift? Which way are you willing to budge on, and which ones are you not? I think Genesis 1 is very clear on those eight things. We don't move on those. When science disagrees, we stay strong. So as important as the things that we must believe about creation are, those eight, it is as equally important how they should impact our lives. So we're on our last point. Number three, does it impact my life? What's the purpose? Great, Travis. Thanks for science class. Thanks for a lecture on eight things I better believe or I'm a bad person. What's the point? Does it impact my life? I'm glad you asked. It does. The doctrine of creation is vastly important for your life today. Not to get an A on the exam, not to pass the theology exam to be an elder. It impacts your life today. How does it impact my life? The doctrine of creation answers five of life's most important questions. No matter if you're a theologian or not, no matter if you're religious or not, No matter if you believe in God or not, the study, what we just explained, those eight points, answers five of life's most important questions. Here's the reality, and this is why this is so important. No matter if you're religious, a theologian, or not, you've asked those five questions. And God in his love for you answers them, all in chapter one of Genesis. The five questions that every human being will question and wrestle with and want answers to, and when they don't get answers to, they despair. These five things the world brings hope, the Bible brings hope to and purpose to. These five things will bring joy and peace and purpose to life. This isn't just a cold doctrine series. This isn't just a study. This isn't just a lecture. It impacts your life today. This can change your life today. So what are those five, inqu- those five questions? What are those five questions that every human being wrestles with and des- desperately wants answers to? And how does the Bible, Genesis 1, answer these? Number one, where did we come from? All of creation wants to know. Every human being wants to know, where do we come from? What's the origin? We all want to know our backstory. We're made by God. There's the answer. You might not like the answer, but Genesis 1 tells us you were made by God. God is your father. Happy Father's Day. He's your father. Here's the problem. 
when the answer to that question, number one, is unknown, we fail to understand our value. Look at the world you live in. Think about the people you interact with and talk to. When they don't understand number one, they fail to understand their value. I just, I just came about, it was chance. I was lucky. We evolved. When the answer to number one is wrong, we fail to understand our value. Do you get that? When you understand that you were made by God, who before the foundations of the world thought of you and loved you and called you and chose you, knew your name, knew how many hairs were on your head, knew exactly how many breaths you would breathe, doesn't that add value? Oh my goodness, yes. The creator of the world, the one who hung the stars, created me, chose to give me life chose to give me breath, is choosing to give me my next breath. There's where your value comes from. Number two, who is in charge? Man, we want to know that answer. I think that's a question everybody wants to know. Ultimately, they mostly answer them. That's usually the answer we come to. Who's in charge? I guess it's me. So continue to climb the corporate ladder and prove to the world that I'm in charge. But the answer from Genesis 1 is, no, you belong to God. You belong to God. In the first question of the Westminster Catechism, the question reads, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your Lord Jesus Christ, God and Savior. Doesn't that bring hope? Doesn't that solve so many questions that you wrestle with? Who's in charge? When that question is up in the air, when we don't know the, question, the answer to number two, we fail to understand our accountability. When number two, when there's no answer to number two, we fail to understand our accountability. And what happens when there's no accountability? Chaos. Absolute Carnage, chaos. Everyone thinks it's right in their own eyes. Judges chapter one, chaos ensues. When there's not an answer to number two, watch out. Good luck, lock your doors. When we do have an answer to number two, it brings peace. Who's in charge? Like it or not, you belong to God. And I think that's a lot of good news. Number three, what is our purpose? What's the meaning of life? The question every single human being wrestles with, and you'll probably get asked. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Why am I here? What's my job description? Genesis teaches us you exist for God. He's the artist. You're the art. He's the potter. You are the clay. The clay doesn't get to say to the artist, the potter, hey, I don't want to be this. I want to be something else. I don't want to be used for this. We exist for God. His purpose is our purpose. Our purpose is handed to us. And we know our purpose is to make much of him and to glorify him. When the answer to number three is unknown, we fail to understand our job. And when we fail to understand our job, we make our own jobs. 
And that job always becomes to make much of myself and to glorify myself. That sounds more fun. I want to make much of me. I want my name in lights. I want the world to praise me. I want all eyes on me. I want the world to see and look at me. That sounds more fun, but it's way more unfulfilling and only leads to despair when the world doesn't. When you understand your purpose, that God gave you a purpose and to make much of him and to glorify him, you have the ability to accomplish that purpose and therefore to receive all your value and satisfaction in him. Number four, what brings us joy? Man, that's such an important question. What brings us joy? Like true joy. What brings true happiness? The happiness and the joy that lasts. The joy and the fulfillment in my life where I don't go seeking more joy. Doesn't it get scary when you get to that point? When you're bored? When you're unfulfilled? When you're unsatisfied? Doesn't that get to a scary place? For men, I think we call that a midlife crisis. I'm getting close. If you see me driving a Harley, you're going to know I, I hit it. What's my purpose? What brings me true joy? When the answer to number four is unknown, we fail to understand what brings us fulfillment. And when you don't know what brings you fulfillment, you go and look for it. And that is a scary place to be. When men, when husbands, when dads seem unfulfilled and they go and look to find fulfillment, that's a scary place to be. When we know the answer to number four, we find our satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ. The world has nothing to offer me. Does that make sense? I know what brings me joy. The glory of God to make much of him. And when I do that, I don't need anything the world says they can offer me. Those Lexus commercials don't win when I understand I'm fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ to bring love and honor to him. The world pales in comparison when I know my fulfillment comes from God. Number five, what is our greatest need? What do I truly need? Man, that's a tricky question too, isn't it? How many times have we said, you know what I really need? It's Father's Day, right? Hey, Case, you know what I really need for Father's Day? You know what I need? Whew, it's a tricky question. Americans, I don't think we've ever really known what we need. Every day I have more than I need. What do we need? The answer is dependence. We depend on God. My next breath is not dependent upon my heart. It's dependent on my Savior. It's dependent on my, my Creator. My next health exam coming back clear isn't dependent upon anything except my Creator. I'm dependent upon God. That's what I need. And when the answer to number five is unknown, we fail to understand where to turn in times of trouble. Life is about trouble, right? Life will bring trouble. If you're in a good spot now, wait a week. It'll all change. Life is about trouble. For unbelievers, I'm not sure. I don't know how they get by. I don't know how they survive. I don't know how they get by health exams and bills, debt collectors. 
I don't, I have no idea how they sleep at night, how they put their head on their pillow at night. I don't know. For us, we sleep well because we know our greatest need is God and that there's nothing I can do in this life to make myself happier, to to fulfill that even more. There's nothing I can go buy that'll solve my problems. There's nothing I can go buy that will solve my problems. I better have God. When this life ends and I breathe my last, will my savings account matter? Will the size of my house matter? Will the number of cars I own matter? Will who I know is my only hope in life and death matter? Will my Lord and Savior matter on that day? Oh my goodness, yes. Everything else will fail. Everything else will fall away. So does theology matter? Oh my goodness. Can you imagine if you don't have answers to those questions? How would you live tomorrow? How would you go on tomorrow if you don't have answers to those questions? Does the study of creation matter? It answers all of them. Genesis chapter 1 brings clarity to five of life's most important questions. Oh my goodness, it matters. And when creation, go back to the Ken Ham quote, when creation is up in the air, when Genesis chapter 1 isn't a big deal, all those five questions you have the freedom to answer on your own. You get to decide what you believe and what happens next. The doctrine of creation not only answers life's hardest question, questions, but it brings meaning and purpose to our life. Because one thing God continues to reveal throughout the rest of Scripture is that all of creation is about his son, Jesus Christ. We can't end in Genesis 1 tonight, this morning. Can you turn to Colossians chapter 1 for me? I want you to see how God wrote and beautifully scripted creation to point us to the gospel. I failed you if I don't preach the gospel to you today. And I want to show you how creation declares the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which I'll read briefly for you, it tells you the story of the world from creation to the cross. This beautiful summary. So you've got the entire Old Testament, several books in the New Testament, It's real thick. It's a lot of pages. And then Colossians 1 comes, verses 15 to 23, and summarizes it all. Yeah, you know what you just read? Uh, Let me summarize it for you in just a couple verses. Here's the main point. You ready? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Genesis 1. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether uh, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There's your mission statement right there. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So he's even about us. He's above us. He's our senior pastor. He's in charge. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, his incarnation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see how quickly he moved from creation to the cross? 
He moved from creation to his, his, his coming to earth, to the cross. And he says all of it is about Jesus. The whole point, the whole story is about Jesus. The story of history from Genesis 1 through the cross is about God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we can't end today just talking about eight things you must believe about creation. We talk about ourselves and how we fit in this story. For we're the creation and we're supposed to honor and worship Christ. Why? Because he spoke the world into creation. He holds the world by the, he holds the, world by the word of his mouth. And he's the one who gave his life as a ransom to redeem it. Now, I can't get into sin. It's not my theology today. But you know how the story goes. Genesis chapter 2, things look really well. And we're only on page 3 and it all falls apart. And that's where you sit. You hang between the old creation and the new creation. The longing for this world to be redeemed, your body and soul. That's where you wait. And Colossians 1 says, Jesus has got it. The one who's spoken into creation, even though this world has spiraled out and gone weird and gone wrong, he's got it. He's still in charge. He didn't wind up the clock, let it go, and then the clock broke, and he's like, well, I don't know what to do about it anymore. It was his sovereign plan from the beginning. So we want to end this morning in communion remembering and recognizing the sacrifice that Christ made, the cross. Because we look at creation and we see the chaos that has happened, how it has gone out of control and gotten weird, and then we remember his sacrifice. How he loved us so much, he didn't leave us in the mess. He could have destroyed us with the flood, but he kept Noah alive and his family made a promise to Noah that he would send a Messiah, a Savior. So we look at creation, the beauties of creation, and it declares his handiwork. But we most glory in the cross, that his son would come and die for us to take our place. Please come the next several weeks. We'll dive into sin. We'll dive into our need for a substitute. We'll dive into the depths and the beauties of the gospel even more. But for today, remember, God created you with a purpose, with a point. Don't cave. Stay true to what we know about creation because ultimately it points you to your need for a savior and the fulfillment of Christ in it. Your greatest need is dependence upon God. That was point eight. God fulfilled that and solved that by meeting your greatest need 2,000 years ago on the cross, by sending his son, Jesus. So your greatest need has always been God, and your greatest need today is to be reminded that God met your greatest need on the cross.